I'm getting more breaking news. This, this, this is the D-Word Podcast with Dion G. Welcome to the D-Word Podcast, and I'm excited to introduce you to my next guest. He is somebody who I look up to from the time I was a teenager, but more than that, he's one of the biggest media personalities in South Africa. And he's not just a media personality in one uh, level of, of radio or in even TV. He goes beyond that. In fact, we're going to unpack that in the podcast today. Without further ado, let's welcome a legend in radio to me. That's what I call him, uh, Alan Khan. Welcome to the D Word Podcast. Dion, so wonderful to be in your company today. And it's uh, bringing back memories of the first time I met you at East Coast Radio when we were at Juniper Road yeah. uh, in a temporary building. And uh, you came up with this young guy with so much passion, enthusiasm. Uh, and uh, love for the medium. And I'm yeah. so glad that uh, your career has been a success. Uh, you had it then, you have it now, and you'll have it tomorrow. I've got no doubt about that. Wow. Thank you for the kind words, Alan. But uh, this is not about me today. This is about you, right? So uh, I think when I started doing, um, bringing up the topic of a D-Word podcast, people always ask me, what is it all about? Well, it's about inspired people or inspiring people that actually have made a difference whether it's to the world, to a specific country, or to a specific uh, people. And I think you've done a lot of things that I've read your CV and I was like, how do I, how do I make a shorter version of this? Because I can't. Um, but we're going to talk about that today because you're not just a radio person. You are involved in many different fields, but we'll get to that. But Alan Khan, where did your life start from the place you were born, where you were raised, if you're going to talk about that? We can start there. Well, I was born at St. Aidan's Mission Hospital uh, in Durban on the 17th of December, 1971. Uh, and uh, Overport, which was a suburb close to Durban, um, was my home. And I'm still rooted to there. I, I live in Morningside now, which is a stone's throw away from Overport. Uh, my parents, uh, up until a few months ago, had lived in Overport. They've since relocated to another province. Uh, so I'm very much uh, a Durban boy, immensely proud of my city proud of the region that I'm from and patriotic to uh, my country. Uh, I've been blessed, Dion, with unbelievable opportunities. You know, growing up uh, as a youngster in Overport uh, during the 70s and 80s, uh, life wasn't easy, uh, but our parents, our neighbors, family and friends, we made the most out of things. Uh, I have wonderful memories of playing cricket with a tomato box as wickets in the road. And each time a car came by, everyone would scurry and remove the wickets and the car would go down and you know, we became masters at the straight drive because houses were on either side and, you know, someone would be bowling uphill because the road would slant and you'd play a shot and you'd only be able to hit the ball straight past the bowler packed with fielders. You know, we had unbelievable memories, uh, you know, during school holidays, walking uh, from Overport with my neighbors and friends to uh, Asheville swimming pool because none of us had pools at home in the 70s and early 80s. Uh, and, um, you know, life was just really fun and enjoyable. We may not have had the best of material things, but we had the best of things. And with an unbelievable family structure, 
uh, with friends and family, neighbors, all around one another, supporting you, um, you know, provided a really good foundation. My mom owned a preschool, which was the first uh, registered pre-primary school for uh, Indians at the time, because if you remember during the apartheid years, we had different uh, education departments based on race groups, uh, which was most unfortunate. Thankfully, things have changed now. Uh, and, you know, I was really lucky because I got to go to preschool at my mom's school, which was in the basement of our house. And, um, you know, that provided uh, me with a really good uh, grounding to move on from there. As a, as a kid, um, I fell in love with horse racing commentary. Don't ask me why, because I'd never been to a race course as a kid. Uh, and I think because um, my dad uh, and his friends uh, used to place the odd bet uh, on racehorses, and I kind of got an affinity for it. And I just started commentating on horse racing, so much so that eventually um, I uh, commentated for uh, the Denman brothers, who were horse racing commentators at Gravel Racecourse, the Durban Turf Club. And, um, you know, at one stage in my teens, I thought I could make a career out of this. But those days, it was um, sadly not a career option for people of color. Uh, but I, I always had an idea that I think I'm going to have a career behind a microphone. Uh, after graduating or matriculating rather from Gandhi Desai, which had unbelievable memories for me, uh, I enrolled to study chiropractic at the former Technicon Natal, which is now the Durban University of Technology. Um, and early on in 1990, uh, we had just finished a practical session uh, on human body dissection for Anatomy 1. And we had bathed uh, the cadaver in formaldehyde to keep the, the body fresh. And we had these white lab coats and we were smelling of formaldehyde, which is a fairly strong smell. And we were walking to the uh, cafeteria uh, with uh, two of my friends. And I saw these two guys carrying a massive speaker, 1810, which I'm sure you may be familiar, 18 inch at the bottom, 10 inch on the top, it was in one case. And it looked like they were struggling. So being the kind guy that I think I am, I said, hey, would, you know, can I help you? Not expecting them to say, yes, of course. And they said, yeah, sure. And those two guys happened to be David Yap and Mark Burgess and carried up the speaker. Um, thankfully, the building wasn't too far. And I said, what are you guys doing here? They said, no, this is our campus radio station. Why don't you join us? And I said, no, I'm a chiropractic student. And they said, no, I just come, you know, just have some fun, play music. And it's a great way to meet girls. And I said, really, meet girls? And I was in. And uh, they said, can you help us with the second speaker? And I thought, oh, goodness. And off we went uh, to the car park, grabbed the second speaker, went back into the radio station. The following Tuesday, I had my first show, um, and that was 31 years ago. Uh, so it was really destiny meeting Mark Burgess and David Yap uh, that afternoon um, on campus. Um, and from there, you know, it spiraled on through Capital Radio, East Coast Radio, Jacaranda FM, Lotus FM, and, uh, you know, thankfully many happy memories and working with remarkable people and meeting mm. so many incredible people along the way. I, I got to touch on that because... The storyline of, of radio to when you first started radio is very different to how it is now, where nowadays people find talent differently. How, how different was it for you back then, and especially with the times uh, back then, radio? Well, you know, I got involved in radio, obviously, from a social perspective. I was on campus. I had no intention 
to make a career out of it. It was a great way for me uh, to make new friends, to socialize. And after that first show on TNT radio, I thought, well, this could be fun. Uh, let me continue. Uh, you know, those days, uh, and just moving away from campus radio, when I started off at Capital Radio, things were exceptionally exciting because I was a listener of Capital Radio during uh, the 80s. Um, you know, the legends uh, who I used to listen to, some of them um, I ended up working with, which was just remarkable for me. And those that had moved on from Capital Radio, just to be in that studio, knowing that the likes of Kevin Savage and Tony Blurt and Alan Mann and Jim Ellery uh, and so many others, uh, Oscar Renzi, uh, Treasure Shabalala, had touched those same sliders, had hit those same start buttons, had uh, you know placed vinyls on those same turntables and you know lifted up the needle and uh, you know off they went. Uh, that for me gave me a huge sense of excitement and joy. Um, but you know, radio from vinyl to where we are now, it's uh, evolved in leaps and bounds. You may remember when MTV started in the 80s, their first song was by the Buggles, Video Kill the Radio Star. And everyone thought MTV is going to end the radio generation. Well, you know, VHS is dead, radio is still here. Yeah. Uh, we've evolved and we've got the ability and capability to evolve. And one major difference, though, and you know, this is not just with my radio presenter hat on, but from a radio management and executive perspective, uh, I know casting my eye back 30 years, a lot of people got into radio and were prepared to put in the graveyard shift, the hard hours, the hard graft, uh, you know, to progress and to move. Nowadays, and I know I'm speaking in general, but nowadays there's a tendency of people either wanting to use radio to step onto other things or, or wanting to get involved in radio and really expecting the wheel to turn exceptionally fast uh, and to move up the ladder and to grab primetime shows. Uh, the world has changed. Um, the digital revolution is here. Um, it is not if things will be different. Things are different. Um, take it from me, uh, even when I was at Lotus FM, admittedly doing a talk show, not a music show, uh, you know, the structure of the shows are different. Uh, whilst most commercial radio stations are still formatted, uh, as you would know, you can't just play the music that you want. There are playlists and rotations and different categories of music and music research that goes into it. I know of uh, presenters who um, decided to defy the music policy of radio stations, you know, and they're paid sadly uh, by losing their jobs. So, you know, it's really one of those things. Uh, a lot of people who tend to listen to radio say, well, you know, that radio presenter, that DJ plays rubbish music, I don't like him, or this guy plays great music, it's all my favorite stuff, you know, and that's not really the case uh, because so much of what we hear on radio is formatted. And also, you know, it's a multimedia world. We are yeah. uh, touching so many different points. It's not just the microphone now. You have your social media and you have so many different platforms on social mm -hmm. media. Yeah. You know, radio stations have websites uh, which generate their own content. And I remember when I wrote an article, I think about uh, 12 years ago, uh, that was just after I spoke at the African Broadcasting Congress, where I delivered, uh, um, uh, you know, my topic was the internet is not an extinction level event for radio. Many people were saying, well, that's it, things are gonna change. You remember the iPod generation, and we thought, well, the iPod's gonna change the way people listen mm. to music. And iPod's gone, you know, most of us have our music on our mobile phones now. Um, you know, so things have really changed over the years. So when I look back at how, uh, you know, radio was in 1990, when I started comparing to what it is now in 2021, it really is a different world, but it is still a one-to-one -one medium. 
you're still connecting with another person who's listening into you. It's something still very personal. It's still very immediate and it still has the power to change the world. So Alan, you were talking about Capital Radio and I think that is a radio station uh, which a lot of people loved. Uh, and I say the word loved is because I've never seen a generation of people that said, I wish there was Capital Radio. I wish there was a station like this. And I wish there was more presenters like Capital. Uh, why don't you take us through the culture of Capital 604? And what was that like for you as a person? Well, the radio station formally commenced broadcasting on the 26th of December, 1979. Um, the transmitters were based in the independent, uh, the former independent uh, homeland state of Transkei. Um, and as such, uh, it was Southern Africa's first truly independent radio station. In the apartheid years, the SABC had a broadcasting monopoly. Uh, as a state broadcaster, it had to subscribe to the apartheid government's uh, various rules and regulations. And one of those was censorship of news. So Capital Radio provided an outlet where news was not censored, it was independent. Um, you know, the music uh, was phenomenal. The presenters were world-class. And it just gave you this unbelievable sensation uh, of um, escapism from the shackles of listening to what the SABC was providing at the time. And, you know, for me as a youngster growing up in the 80s and uh, coming from a progressive family, Capital Radio uh, was the entertainment destination for me. Being a, a sports loving person as well, uh, not physically, but following sport, uh, and I'm being a British football fan and an Everton football fan, Capital Radio uh, used to provide unbelievable coverage uh, of uh, English um, well, pre-Premier League days. It was English first division football. Uh, and, you know, so those were the outlets, but it was the music, the presenters, the lifestyle that it had promoted. Uh, they had a helicopter. It was just, um, you know, it was an, um, not just an inspirational radio station, but the brand was aspirational. You wanted to listen to it. At the uh, Royal Agricultural Show in Peter Maritzburg, uh, the Capital Caravan would be there. And you know, I remember um, as a teenager going up to the window and waving at Dave Simons, who was on air at the time, and he waved back, you know, and I was like blown away that Dave Simons waved back at me, uh, you know. So these were the ingredients uh, of what made Capital Radio a favorite among so many people in the country. Uh, you know, during the, uh, the 90s, the radio station had changed slightly because a lot of the presenters who um, had added such value to the radio station had moved on. And interesting enough to the SABC, 5FM had nicked quite a few of them. Uh, Kevin Savage, Tony Blewett, Darren Scott was on his way. Um, so that created space for a younger generation of broadcasters. And when Capital Radio uh, relocated from Port St. John's, where they started broadcasting from the old port captain's house, um, they opened up a studio in Mill Park in Bramfontein um, in Johannesburg, and then relocated to Durban. Uh, the studios were in the workshop shopping center. There was a fabulous store there. Uh, that sell capital clobber or capital clothes. And we used to go in and go to the store and you could buy, you know, all sorts of things from the shop. And then, you know, peer down into the studio and watch the presenters uh, doing their thing. It was really innovative, pioneering. What year are you talking about now? Uh, we're talking about um, probably the late 80s, early 90s, I think it was, around 88, 89, uh, 1990. Uh, and from the workshop, um, which was also at its time, uh, unbelievable shopping destination in Durban. 
they relocated to South Beach, uh, to the old Cineland complex, just above Sand Pebbles. Sadly, the building's no longer there, but it was opposite the Malibu Hotel near the paddling pools. Um, you know, that was really uh, the capital radio that became home for me because that's you know, where I started presenting from. Uh, and you know, I joined uh, a young group of broadcasters who thankfully have all made their mark in the industry. People like Lee Downs, who's had a successful career. He's now based in Cape Town. Of course, Kenny Maestri, who's done remarkable things, um, you know, not just at Capital, but at Metro is now on 702. Uh, Dixie Ngula, Justice Ramashlola, or Just Ice, as his brand is called. Um, you know, and then, of course, uh, I was blessed to have been included in that. Darren Scott gave me a call in the days before mobile phones. It was a Monday, I'll never forget it. And um, I used to play social league 10 pin bowling for our campus radio station, TNT Radio. And I'd go down to Disc Bowl in Ordnance Road uh, in Durban on a Monday and uh, you know, play 10 pin bowling. I wasn't really good, I'd try my best. Uh, and the one Monday I got home and my mom said, oh, uh, Darren Scott called for you. And I said, oh, absolute rubbish. Why is Darren Scott gonna contact me? And, and how did he get my home number? Uh, and she said, well, he said, please give him a call tomorrow and you know, left the number. And I looked at the number and it had a 604 in it. And I thought, okay, there could be some truth in this. And I was really excited and you know, the next morning, uh, dialed the number, went through the switchboard and they said, who could I say is calling? And I said, it's Alan Khan for Darren Scott. Could I take a message? I said, well, Darren contacted me yesterday. Um, and they said, all right, we'll put you through. And had a chat to Darren, it was him. I was blown away, I was excited beyond belief. And he said, we're starting this um, program for young broadcasters called Give It A Go and we'd like you to launch it. Um, and I said, sure, uh, I'll be there. He said, can you, in tomorrow and we can have a chat and that was it i went down and had a chat i did give it a go um they then offered give it a go to a few other people um then contracts were offered i wasn't fortunate enough to get a contract at uh, the first option uh, i know lee downs had got in kenny maestri justice had got in affitude had then started which was a really difficult time for the radio station uh canadian chap by the name of uh, david smith came in convinced uh, the capital directors and the owners of the time, the Transkai government, that the station needed to change and be a station with an Afritude and have a more African continental focus. The logo changed, the lineup changed, the music format changed, um, and well, the station changed, uh, lost listeners. Uh, and then I think sanity prevailed and the radio station tried to return to its former days. Um, I was then, given a call to say, you know, we'd love you to join us. He has a contract. Um, and I jumped at it because I knew, you know, I needed an opportunity and it would have been Capital. I, I wasn't looking at joining any other radio station apart from Capital Radio. Um, I hadn't sent a demo tape to anyone else. I hadn't picked up a call, a phone and called any program manager in the country. I used to listen to Capital and if I worked at a professional radio station, it was going to be Capital. So joining them was just remarkable. Sadly, it was uh, at a difficult time, as I said, in the radio station. And the radio station never got back to its uh, former days. Uh, the new government came in in 1994, and we thought, well, here we go. Capital Radio will finally be given an FM license so we could compete on an even footing. And that was a fight in itself. Um, you know, two and a half years after democracy, the government that Capital Radio supported in terms of our broadcast policy, 
of our news of interviewing Oliver Tambo, the former president of the African National Congress from Stockholm, of being a progressive radio station, of being a radio station on the right side of history. It was ironic that our free democratically elected government would be the government that would eventually shut the radio station down and compromise the careers and lives of so many people who are dependent on employment at Capital Radio. It's still a immense, immensely emotional thought for me. Kenny Maestri and I had the sad honor of uh, being the last two presenters to host the final show on Capital Radio on the 29th of November, 1996. And, you know, the radio station took its first breath with Bridge Over Troubled Water by Simon and Garfunkel. Alan Mann was the presenter. And our final breath was Bridge Over Troubled Water by Paul Simon and Art Garfunkel with Alan Kahn and Kenny Maestri signing off. And, uh, you know, it really, I think it was one of uh, the darkest days in the history of South African broadcasting. You know, Alan, I, I actually heard that last hour because it's all over the internet uh, with you and Kenny and everybody, you know, had different emotions. I mean, I, I never listened to Capital. I was too little to it. But just the sense of the of the whole station where you knew a family member that had that sticker of Capital 604 stuck on their car or you knew somebody who listened to it. You know, you go to your favorite uncle be like, why are you listening to 603 medium wave? You know, why? It's like, and but that's how much people loved the station. They loved it so much. And I think I think there was, there was at least five or six uncles who just like always listened to it. They had their t-shirts, they had, they had gear. And I was like, I mean, nowadays you don't get that. You don't get that same love as what the listeners had back then. I know it sounds a little traditional to look back at, at those years and say, and say how it is now, but I'm sure the emotion that you share with Capital, uh, I don't think you've, you've experienced that anywhere else. But what do you think made Capital so special back then? The ability to connect with its audience. That's the reason why people would wear the brand. They'd pay good money to go and purchase a t-shirt, not handed out free of charge, to go and get sunscreens that they would stick on their windscreens, um, that you know they would go and buy bikinis and bags, uh, beach towels, and so many other things with the Capital Radio name on it, because they connected to what the brand stood for. Yeah. Uh, you know, Capital Radio 604, all the hits and more. You know, you just said it, it was 603, but all the hits and more didn't rhyme with 603, it rhymed with 604. Yeah. Uh, you know, so whilst the frequency was 603, uh, 604 was what the brand was called. But that connection between Capital Radio, the brand, its presenters, uh, its content with its audience was just remarkable. Yeah. Uh, and that what, that's, you know, the magnet for me, that's what drew me into Capital Radio, what it stood for and what came out on the other end of the speaker. Uh, and I think, you know, that's a common denominator, which is why all these years later, since November 1996, when Capital closed up until now, there's still so many good memories of Capital Radio. Uh, you know, the Capital Radio 604 websites, phenomenal. Uh, you can go and listen to interviews with presenters. Uh, you know, they even sell Capital 604 gear there. Uh, there's uh, shows that get broadcast. Uh, I know Dave Simons has been doing things. Um, you know, uh, Steve Smith. Uh, Craig Johnson, who's now based in the U.S., has been remarkable with the 
the website over the years. And he produced and funded out of his own pocket the Capital Radio 604 documentary that's played at film festivals. Um, and uh, it is also on YouTube. And I think for a limited time, it was freely available on YouTube. It may still be there. And if you want to see the history of Capital Radio and listen to the stories, um, what an adventure. Craig Johnson, thank you for being such an integral part in keeping the Capital Radio 604 dream alive, not just for us in our country, but for people all over the world. Many South Africans have left and have settled um, you know, out of the country. They still have a, a memory and a connection to Capital Radio 604. Mm. You would listen to this radio station on medium wave, Dion. Um, I would get calls from Maputo at, in the evenings when it was cloudy and the signal would travel. It would rarely travel from, the, um, from its base um, in southern KwaZulu-Natal uh, all the way up to Maputo. And it was also designed to get into Gauteng, you know, um, Johannesburg. Sadly, I think it never really got the quality of signal it deserved there. But uh, it was a remarkable radio station, innovative, pioneering, ahead of its time. And, um, you know, something that played a role in helping to build the careers of so many people who went on to achieve so much and added mm. such value to the South African broadcasting story. It is really remarkable. And, and you know, when you speak about capital, um, I remember at night, it was much clearer, the whole medium wave experience. Yeah. Uh, and obviously now, if you look at how radio is now, how we consume radio, we consume it via our phone, via streaming services. There's so many different ways. If capital was still around now, what would you think it would be like? You know, I think it would have continued to have innovated and pioneered um, so many other radio stations. And I know of one or two uh, you know, radio professionals who I won't name, who used to call in and act as listeners to get football scores and then broadcast it on their show. Uh, you know, uh, and once or twice we caught on because we made out the voice and we provided the wrong score to those radio stations. Yeah. Uh, you know, they said, well, you know, Man United are losing 3-1 when it was, you know, 2-2, for example. Uh, you know, so the radio station was uh, pioneering at that stage. Uh, I'm sure it would have continued. If Afritude didn't come in and compromise the format at that time, right? But, you know, who knows? Uh, yeah. Hindsight is the perfect science. But if you look at what it achieved in, um, certainly in the 80s at its height, I think that would have continued because it also gave young broadcasters like myself, it took a gamble on someone like me. Mm. It saw potential in people like Kenny Maestri, uh, Kenny Maestri, Justice Ramashlola, uh, myself, Lee Downs. And it said, you know, we can see something there. We're going to back you. We'll give you a platform, we'll give you the tools, we'll give you the training, pre present an opportunity. The rest is up to you to make it happen. Um, you know, and there's not a day, Dion, it may sound cliche, but there's not a day that goes by in my life that I don't somehow think about Capital Radio 604 mm. and what it did for me. And possibly the greatest thing it did for me was not radio, but it provided me with an opportunity to meet the woman of my dreams. Um, would end up being the queen of my heart, the rock of our family, and my lovely wife, Mariam Sidat, who I, I interviewed on Capital Radio on the 10th of September, wow. 1996. Uh, and 178 days later, after that interview, we were married. And uh, God willing, we'll be celebrating our 25th wedding anniversary next year. So, you know, Capital Radio provided me much more than just a radio career. They gave you a parting gift. <laughs> a gift that keeps on giving. <laughs> that too. Um, so that's that's already amazing. I know we just we're not even at the the crust of your career yet, but 
just to, to finish off capital, uh, while I was doing research on capital and when I started off my career, I always liked to learn about the cultures of different um, radio stations and what made them successful. I mean, I idolized the guys like Titch Mataz. I idolized guys like Shadow Stevens, whose voices were like, wow, it was all about the voice. And then I heard about a legend at Capital 604 called Alan Pierce. Tell me about that guy. I need to know because I know his voice was like, yo, he was, he was the, the sting. Am I right? I'm going to <laughs> Alan was on another level. He was probably the most famous American voice in Southern Africa. Apart from his television and radio commercials, just listening to his show um, was something special. And what endeared me to Alan Pierce is that he was not shy to offer guidance, advice, and share his knowledge with young broadcasters like myself. Um, after my show, um, our hotline would ring in the studio and he'd, you know, give you words of encouragement. Um, he was always one to motivate. And, um, you know, apart from his ability in studio and that remarkably rich, velvety, smooth voice, uh, he was a good guy. Uh, he liked tequila. Uh, that was, um, you know, something that he was synonymous for. But his musical knowledge... Um, he presented a jazz show on a Sunday, which was second to none. Um, all around good guy. You know, I was Im immensely sad when he passed on. And you know, what made me even more disappointed was that, you know, after a stellar career, engaging with so many people, it was just a handful of us at the Clara State Crematorium at his funeral, you know, and that put things into perspective for me because whilst this is a career and you think you may be popular and people tune in and, you, you know, find your face in newspapers or nowadays online or social media. You know, but at the end of the day, it's just really a handful of people who are going to be there. Uh, those who truly love you and support you, which is why, you know, I've always realized um, that you can't be too egotistical in this, in this industry. Uh, you are not bigger than the radio station. You are not bigger than radio or broadcasting. And Alan Pierce, despite his popularity and how good he was, uh, you know, the handful of us who were there to say goodbye uh, during um, his final moments here. So, uh, but, you know, that aside, remarkable guy, have fabulous memories of him. Uh, he once gave me a leather coat, which he said was, well, uh, was buffalo hide, I think, uh, which he said was from um, a Native American tribe. And it had these long tassels on them and doesn't fit me anymore. I've got it stored somewhere. You know, I'll never get rid of it because it was Alan Pierce. Um, and he presented this to me um, just after Capital Radio asked me to do the breakfast show. And he gave me a gift. He said, this um, Buffalo High jacket has got great sentimental value to him and he'd like me to have it. And I was, I mean, I said, no ways I, I can accept that. And he said, please take it and always think of me uh, when you wear this. Sadly, I don't fit into it now because Alan was also fairly thin and slight, um, you know, but um, it's something, you know, that I will always cherish. He was just, um, in my opinion, one of the top 10 uh, broadcasters that I've had the pleasure to encounter in my career over yeah. the last 30 years. You know, when you said you had goosebumps, because that's exactly what I feel <laughs> when, when, I, when, I, when, I, when I think of the guy's voice. I mean, as I said, he was before my time, but, you know, you hear quality and you say, hey, that is... 
that guy's voice. And it kind of reminds me a little bit of Kenny in a little way, in a little way. Uh, but yeah, it was just nostalgic. So I, I did a lot of research on that era of the 604 era. And I, I wish I could actually go back and, and listen because I always love listening to, to radio stations that have the, the community first in mind. And as you said, you've just confirmed that uh, it, it was just about, you know, the listener, that one-on-one connection. So, yeah, so Alan... Yeah, you know there was Oscar Renzi, and yeah. you know we can't talk Capital Radio without the Wiz is Oz. What a show! Ten to one at night uh, brought a whole different uh, audience to the radio station. Oscar was just phenomenal. Uh, so many characters, Richard Jones, um, you know, remarkable with his music. Uh, I also thoroughly loved, and I was a huge fan of Machine Gun Steve Bishop. And you know, getting to work with Stephen Bishop was uh, was a highlight. Um, you know, there was just so many wonderful stories uh, of Capital Radio. Uh, whilst we were one big Capital family, there were many unique characters uh, at the radio station who brought their own individual blend and brand to what made Capital Radio great. Uh, Treasure Shabalala, talking of voices, uh, and whilst Alan Pierce had a magical voice, mm. Treasure Shabalala also for me was, <laughs> you know, it, it was he was in another league, mm. uh, and you know, to still hear him on uh, on Hot FM in Johannesburg with uh, Lloyd Motherray and the team, uh, and to know that Treasure is still dishing it out, uh, you know, decades later, you know, just uh, makes my heart happy to know that these uh, capital voices and capital legends, uh, you know, Tony Blewett is still on air, Kevin Savage, uh, you know, does voiceovers and he was on air, Darren Scott is still on air, so. You know, uh, Tony Morrell is on air, uh, also at Hot, uh, doing the breakfast show. So these Capital Radio legends, you know, stood the test of time. Um, and, you know, they continue to inspire, enlighten and entertain South Africans. Wow. That was a lot of names there that I think I still need to consider maybe for a future podcast. <laughs> There's one name that you did mention there. Steve Bishop. I also know who he was. Uh, but where is he now? Well, Steve Bishop, if you listen very carefully to the Supersport promos, mm. uh, that's his voice. He does a lot of the promos for Supersport. He does a lot of the uh, English Premier League voiceovers. Um, so he is based in Johannesburg. Yeah. Um, you know, I got great memories, not just of in studio with Steve Bishop, but uh, in nightclubs uh, at the famous uh, Kayam, Omar Kayam nightclub uh, on Isipingo, in Isipingo Rail. Uh, you know, he'd arrived there with his uh, black uh, black hat and he'd come decked out. He looked the part, you know, and he'd uh, stick on the vinyls onto the SL 1200s and off he'd go, uh, you, know, and, you know, for me to eventually work with him after listening and parting to his music all those years. He used to present uh, the Capital Hitline, which was, I think, three to four in the afternoon. Um, and I used to race home from school, uh, Monday to Thursday, I think it was, or Monday to Friday and tune into Steve Bishop on the hit line, uh, you know, counting down the 10 songs, as he would say, the boss 10 songs in Capital Country. And uh, really remarkable memories. Love you, Steve. Wow. Well, Alan, we've, we've touched so much of great memories. And as I said, you've given me information that I definitely can't find online because I've Googled about 604. Uh, and I'm talking about the last hour of the show. And I, heard, I, remember, I, I remember you played Fast Love as well with George Michael. There was a few other songs. It was, as you said, late 96. But when you finished your last show at Capitol, and obviously many people by that time already had different job offers, did you have a job offer at that time? Or did you know what was going to happen? Yeah, you know, thankfully, uh, I was one of those that had a job offer. Um, 
East Coast Radio was just sold by the SABC after a bidding process that was uh, under the auspices of the Independent Broadcasting Authority, the IBA, which is now a CASA. And um, the new owners of the license had contacted me and, you know, invited me to join them. And I, you know, accepted. But I said, I can't leave Capital Radio now. This was around October of that year. And I knew that, you know, Capital, we had a deadline. We were still hopeful, Dion. We tried everything as employees, writing to the then Minister Jay Naidu, trying to speak to the Director General of Post and Telecommunications. And we were really hoping for a stay of execution. So I tried to delay leaving uh, in the hope that Capital doesn't close. So I wouldn't have to leave and I'd tell East Coast Radio, thank you, but you know, I'm staying. Uh, but I always knew I had that. Uh, and thankfully, East Coast Radio didn't force me to join in October. Um, you know, they understood. And I think they may have appreciated the fact that, you know, here's a guy who seems to be loyal to, you know, his employer. Mm. And I was honest. And I said, this is my reason. I want to be there. We've been told, December, uh, you know, by the 1st of December, we'll be closed. Uh, so thanks for the offer. But I'd like to join you on the 1st of December if Capital closes. And they said, sure. And um, so not many other people at Capital had that. I know some, some people you know, were unemployed immediately and for months on end, didn't have another job. A lot of people had to leave Durban and try and seek employment in other parts of the country. Thankfully, you know, many did. Sadly, some didn't. And it really was a, a tragedy. But, you know, when that moment happened and we played Bridge Over Troubled Water, and Kenny was driving the desk. I was on the other side. Uh, we, in our plan, the show prep, we said after the song, we'll play the Capital Radio jingle. And um, we were still hoping for the call, you know, from, uh, from the minister's office, right up until then. Uh, staff members, former colleagues had joined us in studio. The media were there, uh, newspaper photographers, and the jingle played. And that was it. The tone signal went on. Emotion all in all around the studio. Still cry about it when I think about it. Cried then, cry now. And it wasn't just the end of the radio station. It was the end of an era. Capital Radio was home to so many of us. Um, Capital Radio was a familiar voice in the darkest days. Uh, it meant so much to so many people. And that moment really was the death of the radio station. And we knew, well, this is it. And you know, what was equally hurtful is that government had sent security personnel in to clear us out of the radio station. You know, to this day, I never got to clear my desk. Things were in my drawer. Um, you know, we were ushered out. Um, and I think within 10 minutes, 10 minutes past six, the radio station was locked. The lights were switched off. Um, it had a massive roller cage on the front door as you walk up the side stairs from Sand Pebbles. That had been pulled down. And you know, by 6.30, we started our farewell party downstairs in Sand Pebbles. And those of us who had capital memorabilia, um, you know, what we could, uh, I sadly didn't take anything from my desk because Kenya and I just wrapped up the show and we were a bit emotional. Others had managed to clear their desks. 
And our PRO at the time, Tracy Ferretto, who's now Tracy Watson, uh, had some capital um, memorabilia that we decided to auction off at the farewell party to raise funds. Even in its final moment, Capital Radio was doing things for the community. Um, and those funds that were raised were handed to the Durban Street Children's Forum to provide shelter and food for street kids uh, in Durban. And, um, you know, that was my chance. So I had to take money out of my pocket, uh, you know, knowing that it's going to a good course. Uh, and I, I managed to secure three or four Capital Radio items that uh, I cherish for my life, that are proudly uh, displayed in my home uh, because, you know, that's my heritage. That's the radio station that helped inform my career. So, you know, that day, the 29th of November, 1996, um, I will never, ever forget. So you mean nobody after, I don't know, I don't know if this is a safe question to ask, but I'm going to ask it anyway. Nobody tried after Capital closed for the station to even have a second chance and maybe fix it, or was it already a done deal? You are closing, it's never going to come back. Was that the, the mandate? Well, that was the decision, the radio station closes. To answer your question, there have been several attempts since then to resuscitate the license. You know, I wish I knew the answer why the regulatory authority constantly refused, declined, turned down the very solid bids and proposals from consortiums, organizations over the years to bring back the radio station. It's on medium wave. You know, if they want to protect other FM license holders in the region, you know, that could be well and good for them. But this is a medium wave license. Uh, competition on the medium wave spectrum, I think, is few and far between. The radio station should have been given an opportunity. Um, you know, you can see the role that Hot FM is playing um, as a radio station that's coming, not as a commercial broadcaster, but as a broadcaster uh, that has a community sound broadcasting license, but also trains youngsters and brings them up to speed and gives them opportunities to make a career out of this. Capital could have played a role in that. It played a role in it for me and Kenny and Lee Downs and Justice and Zach McCooey and Dixie Ngula and so many other youngsters of my generation. It played that role with someone like Darren Scott, who was a young university student in Johannesburg, you know, giving him an opportunity. And, uh, you know, I'm not even talking about our journalists, our fabulous news teams and sport teams over the years. You know, so I wish I knew, honestly, what was the real reason behind the regulatory authority's absolutely stubborn refusal yeah. to give capital rate an opportunity to at least attempt to be resuscitated. Wow. But yeah, that's a story I think a lot of people, even now, when people come across me, they ask me, and I'm like, I don't know the answer. But uh, when I come across somebody who can give me the facts, then maybe I'll share some, some light on it. So now I know. So thank you for sharing that, Alan. So let, let's move a little forward now to, to East Coast Radio. You were there. You started off as a sports um, announcer. Yeah, I was employed as head of sport. Right. Uh, Dave McLeod, who was the general manager at uh, the newly independent East Coast Radio, uh, who used to work with me at uh, Capital Radio. He was our sport editor. Uh, he then moved on to East Coast and uh, did... Uh, a show on East Coast and moved up the ladder. And when uh, Anand Singh's consortium, which included Johnny Clegg uh, and a few other investors, uh, won the license, uh, Dave McLeod was um, 
slotted in as a general manager. And Daryl Ilbury, who some may remember as being a very popular uh, breakfast show host on East Coast Radio, was the program manager. So Daryl wore two hats. He was the program manager and he was the uh, breakfast show host, which wasn't uncommon to someone like me because I used to wear two hats at Capital Radio presenting and then still being involved in sport. And I would end up wearing two hats at East Coast Radio, uh, being involved in sport and in news, but still, you know, doing my uh, radio, my music show on East Coast. Uh, so East Coast Radio, um, you know, started off with uh, a new lease uh, on life because it had broken free from the SABC and it was independent. I think we had around 300,000 listeners when things got underway. And very quickly, uh, we converted those 300,000, <coughs> excuse me, into uh, a million listeners. Um, and I think within two years, uh, we had started spreading our wings and, you know, it became one of the most successful uh, regional radio stations in South Africa. And I think, you know, to this day plays a role uh, and given you a fabulous opportunity uh, over the years, Dion, and many others uh, to grow and to succeed in their broadcasting careers. Wow. Uh, you know, you mentioned a lot of names uh, in there. Daryl Albury is, is somebody else who I also look up to. Um, as, as a legend, I mean, when I started off at East Coast Radio, he was there and I got to, I actually got to do my fill-ins in the morning before he started off and I still just imagine how he handled it. And to, to push it even further, I was so, um, I was so like, you know, blown away by how calm he was all the time when he was on it. I'm like, you got 10 seconds to go on it. I'm like, no, he's cool. I'm like, dude. And I was like... <laughs> I would be like, mm, wait, 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 let me do this, you know? So there was something cool about him that I, I couldn't really explain. And I felt like I learned so much from him. And at East Coast Radio, just to add to a person you mentioned already, another person who I learned from was Darren Scott. Um, he also was a person who just curated content out of just something you just read. And I was like, you just read that and you just delivered it. I was like, normally people have to dissect it, find a nice way to storytell it. He just did it. And I think that was the years of experience just showing itself. And with all the people you've worked on, who are some of the people that you say um, really inspired you to be better in radio? Whether it is from the past or in that era of East Coast Radio when you were there. Man, difficult question, right? <laughs> who inspired me to, uh, to be a better radio professional? You, know, you mentioned Darren Scott. Um, he gave me my first professional radio opportunity. Um, so Darren will always have a, a special place in my heart. Uh, as a listener in the 80s, listening to Capital Radio, you know, Kevin Savage, Tony Blewett, Tony Morrell, um, Steve Bishop, Steve Smith, Dave Simons, Oscar Renzi, Treasure Shabalala. You know, I mean, I can rattle off these names. Um, all played uh, a role in the preceding years. Uh, you know, people like Alan Mann, Jim Ellery. So... When I look at the entire generation, um, you know, I think there are far too many people who I've been able to interact with and pick up little nuances um, that helped me to be a better radio professional. But as opposed to trying to copy or replicate or be like them, you know, I wanted to be me and develop my own style. Uh, and you know, I come from the story of being good and doing good. I didn't start off like that because I was a youngster with stars in my eyes and 
you know, all of a sudden thrusted onto professional radio and I loved every moment. But in 1995, uh, by the grace of God, I was invited to interview His Holiness, the Dalai Lama, when he visited South Africa and in Durban. And he didn't come into the studio. I had to go and record the interview at his hotel, in the hotel room. And I think I was too young to fully appreciate the gravity of what was happening at the time. I mean, I'd known what was going on in our country and politically, uh, and, you know, President Mandela was in charge, but, you know, but here was the Dalai Lama. Um, and I had him for just under half an hour, recorded the interview, which went in on my show on Capital Radio. And at the very end of the interview, His Holiness said, you know, Alan, the beauty about life is that you and I, we have the ability to help others. But if for some reason you choose not to help them, then please, for God's sake, don't hurt them. And it was one sentence that I heard during the interview, but when I played it back in the recording, I then listened with the intent to hear. Mm. And I realized what uh, His Holiness, the Dalai Lama was saying. We all have this ability, Dion, to help others. But if for some reason you choose not to, okay, so we make a conscious decision not to help, that may be well and good, but please, for God's sake, don't make a conscious decision to hurt them. Mm. And I thought, how profound. And ever since then, and, you know, in my uh, talk show on uh, Lotus FM, Walk the Talk with Alan Khan, every night I ended off, you know, with, uh, we all have the ability to help others, so please be good and do good. Uh, you know, and that was really the impact that it had on me. So I tried to then bring that into not just my presentation style, but also in my management style, you know, when I was appointed deputy managing director of East Coast Radio and then chief executive officer of Jacaranda FM, which was South Africa's biggest and most successful commercial radio station at the time. Um, I always realized that people don't care how much you know until they know how much you care. Mm. And I turned be good and do good into the vision of the radio station, changing people's lives for good. So if you walked into Jacaranda FM whilst I was CEO and you asked any presenter or newsreader, salesperson, marketing person, admin, finance, what do you do here at Jacaranda? They won't say we create radio, we sell advertising. What do you do at Jacaranda FM? We are changing lives for good. Mm. So we needed to see the bigger picture. Radio is not just music. Radio is not just selling advertising. Mm. Selling advertising, yes, it's something that is integral to commercial radio stations, playing music is part of the product. But what is the vision? What are we ultimately achieving? So if we wanna change people's lives for good, our listeners' lives, our owners' lives, our, the lives of our staff members, um, you know, anyone who's attached or connected to the radio station, even the lives of people who don't listen to us mm. in communities uh, that are not in our demographic footprint. That's the idea. Because if we can leave this world in a better place, than what it was when we arrived here, you know, then I think that's progress. So, you know, very much that was my thinking as a radio executive, as a, someone who was managing radio stations. Mm. And that stemmed back from someone else who I interviewed in 95. Forgive me if you think I'm dropping names, but Richard Branson was in the country to um, launch Virgin Atlantic. And during the interview, Sir Richard told me that, you know, it's, it's well and good putting your customers first, but he prefers putting his people first. 
Because when you put your people first, they put your customers first. And I thought mm. it's phenomenal, you know? Um, and it's something that I then tried to employ in my own uh, leadership style. It really is all about the people. And if people are happy and content and are prepared to have the commitment and dedication, your business will succeed. Obviously, we had challenges at Jacaranda FM. There was the global financial crisis. You may remember in 2008, markets crashed. Uh, you know, but our radio station during that season still delivered a considerable amount of um, increased revenue year on year for our shareholders and secured jobs for every employee. We didn't lose a single employee during the financial crisis, mm. um, despite the crunch that not just our business was going through, but the country and the world was going through. So, you know, radio has a much bigger purpose to play, but ultimately, you know, the ability to be good and to do, to do good. And if you can help others along the way, then you know, amazing. You know, um, you you touched on Richard Branson, which was amazing. But you know, I was reading your your list of people you've interviewed, and I was blown away. I was like, I've only interviewed musicians, but you've even interviewed people who are very influential, like our late Tata Madiba. What was that like? Because I think that must have been a life changing experience for you. Yeah, I was lucky enough to have interviewed uh, Madiba twice, uh, once before he became president of the country and then once after. Um, it was just remarkable, you know. You, you get a sense sometimes when you are in the company of people who have something special. And you, when they walk into the room, there's this presence. Mm. And Madiba was like that. Uh, His Holiness the Dalai Lama was like that, uh, you know, and a few others. But interviewing Nelson Mandela was just remarkable because there's so many things you want to ask. And he was not shy about answering them either. And in his own unique uh, style and ability. And you had limited time, you know, with uh, uh, Madiba. I wish I could have you know, had him for an hour or two. But, you know, in the, in the few minutes that you have, you really want to get certain points. And you've got to bear in mind that they've only agreed to the interview because they also want to push certain things and create public awareness about specific things. So you really have to provide an opportunity for that to happen as well. Um, you know, but um, meeting him and interviewing uh, Madiba was just phenomenal. Uh, but one of the, the best memories that I have uh, of him uh, was on the uh, 15th of May, 2004 at the World Trade Center in Zurich. Um, I was uh, part of the contingent that went up for our 2010 uh, World Cup bid. And I was also part of the contingent where we failed in 2000 and we did not take Nelson Mandela at that time. And many people had asked uh, for Madiba. So I think uh, the powers that be decided, well, in 2004, we really won the 2010 bid. So Madiba comes with, and he really was the magnet, you know, as much as uh, uh, the South African bid was strong and solid and uh, President Mbeki, uh, you know, chaired the, uh, the bid for us and we had, you know, people like uh, Professor Michael Katz there and you know, various others, uh, we gave a really solid uh, presentation. And you know, when I saw the presentation as part of the media contingent, I thought we have an exceptionally good chance here. You know, but uh, Madiba stole the show, I tell you. Uh, and uh, for the announcement at the World Trade Center in Zurich, you know, he arrives and in true Madiba fashion, he greets the usher at the front door, he talks to security people, he poses for photographs of those who are lined up delayed the, uh, you know, the start of the event by a few minutes, uh, because for him, it's all about the people. Um, and 
and I don't think anyone uh, at uh, the World Trade Center, not even Seth Latter, the president of FIFA at the time, was going to ask Madiba to speed it up. We are behind. And he came in. And uh, of course, uh, that wonderful memory of Seth Latter at the podium, you know, opening up the envelope and pulling out the name and said, South Africa. And the place just erupted. Uh, you know, and uh, I was on air at the time, broadcasting live. And I had Gary Mabbitt, former Tottenham Hotspur captain, with me, and Fulma Singer, a legendary who's now late South African uh, football player. In fact, uh, um, Chippa Masinga's goal um, at the old FNB Stadium took us to our first World Cup in the late 90s. And we were on air together and we hugged and embraced. And Sarisha Naidu was anchoring the show back in Durban. And you know, I, she got the emotion as well. And uh, it was just something special. So uh, we were buzzing. And um, I then stepped out of the studio right at the back and Seb Blatter says, well, we're not having a press conference, but I'll take some questions. And you must know, you know, you had the South African contingent delegation all excited. Uh, then you had all the other delegations who were disappointed um, because they didn't get it. Um, Libya, and Morocco and others. And then uh, I, I don't know what possessed me, but I stood up on the chair and started waving like a madman at the back of this auditorium. And next thing, the president, Seth Blatter, points at me and he says, the gentleman on the chair, and someone brings me a microphone, and here I am uh, with the global television audience. This young guy from East Coast Radio in Durban <laughs> is one of four people selected just after the bid has been announced uh, to ask the president of FIFA a question. And you know, within a few minutes, my mobile phone was buzzing and I was getting text messages from people back home, uh, friends in Australia, friends in the UK, just, hey, we've just seen you on television. Uh, you know, and um, so after that, uh, lots of excitement. Uh, about 10 minutes, um, I get a tap on my shoulder. And it was one of uh, Madiba's guards, who's incidentally, they've just come to, to visit me now, I'm kidding. Uh, and he says, uh, <laughs> Madiba would like to uh, to see you, and I thought I really. And he said, "Yes, can you come? Can you come with?" And I thought, "Okay." And I was with Lazarus Zim at the time, was CEO of Anglo American. Anand Singh was there. He had just come from the Cannes Film Festival, um, and a few others. So, uh, you know, the protection officer escorted me into a side room next to the stage, and in this room there was Nkonda Balfour, who was a former minister of sport, uh, Dr. Nkosana Dlamini Zuma, who was. Minister of International Relations at the time. Um, a few others, of course, uh, Archbishop Tutu was there celebrating, making a noise in this little room. Uh, Seb Blatter, Urban um, Koza, and there was Madiba. I'll never forget this, seated on this chair with these you know, big armrests. And they were taking me to him. And as I was walking to him, he was uh, putting his hands on this chair and he was about to stand up. And I said, no, no, Madiba. And he, he shook my hand and he says, no, I just wanted to thank you. When I heard you from South Africa, I was so proud. Um, and as he says, you asked a very intelligent question. So I, I just wanted to shake your hand. And I thought, wow, you know, I just didn't have a, um, a camera to capture the moment, bearing in mind this was 2004, um, you know, pre-iPhone. So there were no mobile phones with- you know, Nokia's were then, cool. <laughs> um, yeah. And, um, I was sponsored by Ericsson at the time uh, because uh, Aquila, Pure and Precious had sponsored the broadcast and Celsi were the broadcast sponsors. So they gave me an Ericsson phone, which didn't have a camera. Uh, but I thought, how remarkable, right? Here's Nelson Mandela. 
former president of the country, arguably one of the most famous people on the planet. Um, you know, he was captured holding this, um, you know, World Cup trophy and the photograph that made headlines uh, all over the world. And, you know, there he was asking someone to call me, uh, relatively nobody, radio presenter from Durban, who mm. just got to ask a question. But he wanted to say how proud he was that I'm from South Africa and I asked such an intelligent question. And, you know, for me, that was absolutely my most favorite Madiba moment. Uh, wow. something that you always cherish you know as you were saying i was even getting goosebumps just about it and i was like wow that moment you took me there so thank you for that alan uh alan you know uh, before we get into the uh the the position that you're in right now at dut uh, i want to ask you a question that i think you have the experience to maybe dissect radio is changing and you know nowadays um to give you an example we can consume radio via websites we can consume radio via apps uh, radio as a whole, where people people are looking at different ways to get radio. What do you think is the future of radio right now? I think radio is changing because, because people are changing. So the audience will dictate, I think, the future trajectory of this medium that we call radio. You know, whether in the next 10 to 20 years we are still going to have FM frequencies, um, I think it plays a role because the world is not on a level playing field. Um, third world countries have different dynamics to first world countries. Countries um, have much easier broadband access. Uh, other countries are struggling with access uh, to online resources. So I think until we arrive at a time where most of the world has an even footing, radio in general um, will still have this function of being digital and highly functional from a technical perspective and then those that are still reliant on analog signals on fm look at our story with our digital migration we're still struggling with television you know radio is then going to be a few years after that other countries that have tried it and it's working and it's going you know going well so i think as a format yeah. um, radio as we know it now for the short-term future still should look the same uh, in terms of you know switching on a unit, whether it's the traditional radio, or accessing it off your, mm. your mobile phone, as many of us do uh, on laptops and other gadgets. But if you have to, you know, try and predict 20, 30, 40, 50 years from now, uh, you know, I think um, it will change. Mm. It's going to become a lot more personal. Um, you know, you can now on your mobile phone have apps um, highlighting specific things that you want, not just entertainment, mm -hmm. but news and information yeah. and other productive resources. Yeah. You know, so radio, which is aimed at a market category of people, it's defined in particular age groups, living standards measures. You know, you try and cast a net, although you spread it wide, but you try and target, you know, specific categories of audiences. And I think they're going to be challenged by that in the years mm -hmm. ahead because, you know, people could listen to for want of a better word, a radio station in another country, you can do it now, right? Um, and I listen to, uh, you know, radio stations that are based in the UK or the US. Um, and I think it'll be a lot more freely available as access uh, to the internet uh, improves, especially here uh, in Africa, because of what a huge market we have on the African continent. So I think radio is in for a change, but not in the short term. You know, I think yeah. we still have three or four decades before 
we will be forced to change because the world is changing and our audiences are changing. Let's you know, add what you Yeah. Sorry. You know, the thing is, um, and sorry to interrupt you, but no, no, I remember, you know, when, I'm a, when I was a kid, I used to run into the car and convince my dad to turn the dial on the radio and select a specific channel. Uh, when I became a father and my kids were growing up, uh, that hardly happened because <laughs> they would either be listening to their own music yes. on their iPods or phones, or they would get into the car, not fight to select which radio channel, but fight which Bluetooth connection is going to connect so they can play the music <laughs> everyone in the car can listen. So that encapsulates, you know, yes. how radio is going to be challenged, I think, because the audience and the market is changing. Yeah. You know, that's exactly what I was about to share with you. So I actually emceed a webinar for an insurance company a couple of weeks ago, and they were offering a bursary for a student. So I said, hey, this is a chance for me to, to, to test out the landscape of students and ask them, how are they consuming data? What are they doing? So the topic of discussion was, how are you consuming entertainment in 2021? Uh, whether it's traditional ways, whether it is digital ways. Uh, and then obviously came the big question, how do you consume television? Do you stream? Do you watch DSTV? Um, which social media app is, is the trendiest on your list? Um, and you wouldn't believe the unanimous winner was TikTok. Unanimous. It was like there was not a single teenager that said, I listened to the radio. There was not a single teenager that said, I listen, watch DSTV. Maybe they said, I watch DSTV for sport. But other than that, they don't. They stream YouTube, Netflix, TikTok. And I, I think that that may give us, you and I, the conversation, uh, the, the depth of where the answer would be. The future is going that way. And we need to somehow curate our content facing that. I mean, I was talking to you about an app called Clubhouse, which is kind of like radio and a podcast meeting together. The difference is you got to have an iPhone to, to be part of that. If you don't have an iPhone, you, you can't get it. I think it's changing soon though. But the truth is, I think we all need to embrace all the changes that are coming and, and somehow find ways. How can we fit our content in that way? Um, and yeah, so I'm, I'm really excited for the future. But, but Alan, that's a good point. You make a good point, John, because, yeah. you know, where radio professionals were content creators. Yeah. Uh, you know, even that world has changed. Anyone with a mobile phone has the ability to create content uh, and then have a platform to share it, which is why you're seeing uh, TikTok explode the way that it is and becoming, you know, so popular. In fact, if you look at youngsters today, you know, let alone television and radio, they're not even consuming Facebook. You know, if you look at Facebook's latest numbers that they release, yeah. they don't have the third, uh, the uh, 15 to 18 year old market. Yeah. Um, you know, that's feeding in. So even their production line is going to be aging. You know, it's, you know, people uh, in my age group or, you know, the generation after me, but, you know, you're really looking at you know, those who are 25 and below, uh, highly unlikely to continue, you know, frequenting Facebook like those who are 45 and 15. Yeah being able to connect with the world because they have other platforms yeah. that they can share yeah. content yeah. and touch the world. Yeah, just to, to refine that, Facebook is for anyone above 30. <laughs> I think that it fits under the cool category. I think even Instagram is dipping. Uh, yeah. And to give you an example, if you go on radio and you talk about Facebook, you'd get more people tending to bend that way. But you say Twitter, mm, you say Instagram, mm, Twitter, TikTok is like, 
Only if you're a kid, you would. And I think that we all can't just be complacent that those are the apps that work. We need to be active on every platform as radio professionals to be somehow relevant. And I think that what I normally do is uh, I've just started TikTok about six months ago. TikTok South Africa contacted me and they said, hey, we'd like for you to engage with your car content on it. Uh, what is beautiful about TikTok is Instagram has an algorithm drop, which means only a percentage of your followers will see what you post unless they click on the bell icon. I said, that's a weird way of doing things. That's so much like something. This is something Mark Zuckerberg could do on Facebook, but he's done it now on Instagram. And TikTok doesn't do that. It gives you freedom to do, to place music into place. And you just attracting a different audience. It's so, it's like, it's like their parents are on Facebook and they are on TikTok, but TikTok is such an amazing place. I, I come across two kids who have created such good videos that they've now been sponsored by camera companies because they're so good with using their mobile phones. Uh, I think one of them got a company uh, project with GoPro and the other one with Canon. So I was saying, hey, this is the future. If, if that's the app that they want to use, use it but let's make sure we, we, we actually check what, what talent is out there. So, yeah. I imagine the difference it will make when access is more freely available. How mm. many more youngsters can get expired? Yeah. How much talent we have in areas where they're struggling with mobile access to touch the internet? Yeah. Uh, you know, so, I mean, the future over the next two or three decades, provided, you know, we roll out these, uh, these uh, mobile access sites and make it, if not free, really yeah. cheaply available so that you know the masses can access the market yeah. i really hope that's the future yeah. so so i know we're going to touch on uh where you're working now which is the Durban university of technology but uh, before we get there uh, i think it is important for us to also look at the fact that education is a key part of who we are as people and you are now in a front where you get to see it um how is the dut reinventing the education system specifically now where we are in right now with COVID and the pandemic. How is that going down? Well, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm so close to the Durban University of Technology because I studied there. It was Natal Technicon. We have two Technicons, Natal Technicon and Emal Sultan Technicon. And it was the first merged institution of higher learning in the country. And it formed the Durban Institute of Technology, which then became the Durban University of Technology. And in uh, 2011, I decided to leave radio and go back to my alma mater and reinvest what I've learned uh, into the brand and you know, put something back. It's been a baptism of fire because higher education in this past decade has gone through many challenges from hashtag fees must fall uh, to now the COVID-19 pandemic. And that's forced universities and colleges into embracing the online space where some universities were dabbling in it, others were more experienced, and some had been too afraid to get into it. Last year forced us to say, right, well, you know, we can't have face-to-face -face, uh, engagements with our students. We can't lose the year. People still need to have access uh, for teaching and learning. So you need to go online. And uh, DUT, like all the other universities in the country, uh, took this challenge and whilst there were teething problems initially you know today um, all our courses uh, are online and students have been engaging with it so you know I think uh, from a technology perspective the universities are continuing to fine-tune it and this will play a role however 
there is still, in my opinion, uh, nothing better than you know, uh, in-person contact, being in laboratories, uh, you know, having the full university experience. And I think once it's safe to do so, um, universities will return to that because ultimately, yes, whilst you know, giving access for teaching and learning is important, it cannot be at the expense of the health and well-being yeah. of our students and staff. Uh, we are in a pandemic. Uh, the experts are saying we are at the start of what could be a potential third wave of infections in the country. Horrendous scenes coming out of the Indian subcontinent, my goodness. Uh, we've seen you know, countries like the United States, Brazil, many parts of Europe also struggle. Uh, we had a really difficult second wave over December, January and early Feb in South Africa. So the universities are not operating in isolation as to what's going on in the world. Yes, our teaching and learning product is important. Our researchers need to you know, get on with the work that they're doing, but as I said, not at the expense of the health, safety, and well-being of the uh, university community. So I think you know, that's one of the big learnings that has come out uh, over the course of the last year, in particular of the pandemic. Something that stands out for me um, as an employee at the DUT is our graduation events, which are now online, so they lose that whole excitement and enthusiasm of in-person graduation ceremonies. But over the years, you know, you look at the students and the excitement of their families and our graduates, it really added a unique South African flavor to our universities. And the former chief of the South African Navy, uh, Admiral uh, Johannes Modimo, was being uh, conferred with an honorary doctorate at DUT a few years ago. And in his speech, he said, witnessing the students walking across the stage to receive their degrees was like an avalanche of hope. And I thought that was remarkable because that's what it is. We have you know, so many people who graduate from South African universities are first time university graduates in the history of their families. I mean, that's a remarkable thing. So they're not just achieving for themselves, they're achieving for their families, uh, for their communities. Uh, you know, people get three invitations to attend a graduation ceremony uh, which they can then give to their parents, uh, siblings, or friends. You know, but sometimes we get a, a minibus load of people, 16 people arriving. It's not because they're rude. It's because the village wants to celebrate the success mm. of this young person who graduates. Because in KwaZulu-Natal, the saying is, umuntu, angamuntu, angabantu. A person is a person because of people. Mm. And it's that sense of people supporting the graduate during their years of study. They want to be there to celebrate that graduate uh, when they are capped or awarded their degree or diploma. Wow. Well, Alan, you're doing amazing things, uh, Senior Director of Corporate Affairs at DUT. And I think that you've you've got an amazing, uh, well, amazing legacy that's going to be left behind. <laughs> you know, you've created it so much and I still believe you have much more to give. But to future people who who want to study right now, uh, and they're very confused about how things are right now, what words of advice can you give them? Well, firstly, it's important to make the right choices when you're in high school. Yeah. Uh, if you, you know, want to study something science-related, health-related, engineering-related, you, know, you need to choose the right subjects in high mm. school. If you're struggling with mathematics and people are advising you, well, you know, uh, drop to maths lit, it's easier for you to pass. It may be easier for you to pass but it may compromise you in your selection for uh, programs of study in universities. Yeah. Because, you know, for many programs in engineering, 
in the science health related fields maths lit does not qualify as a course of entry so you, know, you need to make the most informed decisions that you can and universities have uh, you know career advice uh, departments student recruitment centers so i'd urge high school students to make use of those resources and also online resources um, you know so make informed choices once you at university and you know right now we're all operating in an online space but i'd like to think post pandemic when we get back to our regular routines mm. and if life ever does return to what it was ever normal before you know make the most of the opportunity because um, university i know when i was a student was remarkable it didn't just afford me a chance from an academic perspective but from a social perspective and various other uh, experiences that then inform you which i'd like to think makes you a more wiser person who can take uh, take the opportunity to make better choices mm. uh, so you know university plays that role so in making a decision think about what you want to study and what is the employability of that mm. you, know, you may choose to do a course which could interest you but there are thousands of graduates who come out nationally and does the working environment have the opportunities to absorb all of those graduates mm. you know so many people have graduated and invested and worked hard and you know have gone through considerable debt to finance their studies uh, to pass and do well but struggle to find employment so our unemployment levels in the country are ridiculously high so you know keep that in mind um, you know choose to study something that has a great opportunity for you so that you can make a career out of it Yeah. Uh, you know so those would be some of the basic things that i think one would need to consider uh, when making a decision decision as to what they want to study at the university well ellen i promise you time's really flying by with us and i know uh, time is really hard especially when you're recording this but there's so many things i want to ask you but i think we we could leave that for maybe a second podcast part number 2 uh but what i want to say on a personal level thank you very much for for giving us this opportunity to talk to you I think um this was a podcast that many people have asked me to do and I'm grateful that you actually gave me the opportunity to, to actually chat to you. Um but I also got to say on a personal level thank you very much for those words that you chatted to me. I'll never forget when I met you for the first time. Uh, Omar Isak was up, was was actually coming off off air. I was just 15 years old. I was like, no, I'm going to be on radio. Like, I was so misguided by what it was. I think it was I was very premature with what I thought. but i think everything happened in the timing but i want to say thank you for actually instilling a lot of knowledge in me even as a kid and I, i've grown since then and over the years we've still touched base whenever we could but i want to say thank you for actually uh, leading the way and actually guiding me if i've never told it to you now i'm telling you thank you for guiding me in my decision making especially in radio and uh, i think that you've done a lot of amazing things and i know you're going to do more amazing things in years to come so thank you Dion, thank you so much for those wonderful words of encouragement. Um, you have a unique talent, uh, and I'm so grateful that you've had an opportunity to express the talent. Uh, I'm delighted that you're doing other things on multiple platforms. Um, you know, you are someone who's gifted, and you've achieved remarkable things. I know your future is going to be filled with even more success and good fortune in the years ahead. So, thank you, firstly, for the opportunity. Uh, thank you for allowing me to relive some wonderful memories uh, with you today. I really appreciate that. And always remember, Dion, the beauty about life is that you and I have the ability to help others. So please be good. Do good. I like that. 
Thank you, Alan. This was the D Word Podcast. I'd be definitely going to have another one soon. And we're going to say thank you once again, Alan, for being here with us. Thanks. Peace, love, and radio. Thanks, Dion. Sure.